Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, October 8th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part 14 of our series, The Protocols of Satan. I hope these aren't getting too trite. Tonight I'm going to spend a good deal of time comparing, um, well, comparing liberalism and, and the assertions concerning government in the protocols, I'm going to contrast them to a lot of the writings of Adolf Hitler, that this is by design. I had set out, when I had set out on this endeavor in part eight of this series, because the first seven parts were designed simply to dispute the contentions over the origins of the protocols and their legitimacy when I embarked on part eight of this series and the and, and the text of the protocols themselves I said that I would spend a good deal of time contrasting Jewish thinking with Christian thinking and some of the best Christian thinking when it comes to the governance of a modern state even though I'm not a statist but that's the paradigm we're all stuck in right now is in Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, without a doubt. For two and a half segments of this series presenting presenting the Protocols of Satan, we took a long digression to discuss Jewish control of the newspapers and glossy magazines of Europe and America from the mid-19th century until the time of the Second World War, or at least until the time of the 1930s and thereabouts. Excluding actual books, newspapers, and magazines were, of course, the only media until the 1920s. And even with the advent of radio and television, they remained the most influential form of media until long after both of the world wars were concluded. But just as importantly as their control of most of the major newspapers was the Jewish control of most of the advertising and all of the major international news agencies throughout that same period, something which we had also discussed. With that, they were able to control even those newspapers which they did not own or for which they did not hold positions as editors or writers. Through their media control, Jews were the foremost creators of public opinion throughout those important decades which have shaped the modern world. Jews created the circumstances and influenced the public opinion by which Tsarist Russia and both Imperial and National Socialist Germany were destroyed for the advancement of the worldwide propagation of Jewish capitalism. For the Jews who orchestrate the media and manipulate entire national populations like marionettes in their orchestra, generations of white Christians destroyed one another in war, and today the whole world lies under the thumb of Jewish usury oppression of the international brokerages and banks. The protocols reflect the definite and calculated plan of action by which the Jews have accomplished their world dominion. Here we shall continue our presentation of the first of the so-called 
Protocols of the Learned Elders of Xeon. We still won't finish Protocol 1 today, but we'll probably make better progress with it than we have over the past several weeks. And hopefully there's a chance we will finish Protocol number 1 next week. Here we will continue with the protocols as they are found in the book, The Protocols in World Revolution, attributed to Boris Brassall and published in Boston in 1920 by Maynard Small and Company. As we have already done in this series, we shall continue, we shall also quote the translation of the protocols made by Victor Marsden in that same decade, because a second insight into the original language of the writers often expedites an understanding of their original intent. And to be honest, I, I typed that as I began this preparation for this program this morning and never felt that I had to quote Marsden in the material we're presenting this evening, but that's fine. We left off where the protocols offer a very foreboding statement and they say, or they boast, that from the temporary evil to which we are now obliged to have recourse will emerge the good of an unshakable government which will reinstate the orderly functioning of the mechanism of popular existence now interrupted by liberalism, ostensibly in the 1880s or 1890s, now interrupted by liberalism. Liberty, economic, political, social liberty to the Jew is anathema. They introduce liberalism so that they could subvert Christian society and impose their own tyranny of money. It's so clear in history that these protocols are, are absolutely the Jewish plan for, subver for subversion of the West. With this, with this statement, we commented in two respects. Firstly, the protocols seem to have surfaced in the very late 1800s. And the revolutions in Russia, as well as the First World War, were looming just over the horizon. It may well be that those events were planned at such an early time in order to usher in the capitalist New World Order, the rule of capital leading to an inevitable Jewish world supremacy. Secondly, we see the real reason why liberalism is always burdened with the seemingly inevitable development of bureaucracy. The people complain of red tape, and it is certainly the Reds who wrap them up in that tape. The Jews who convince the world of liberalism so that they may usher in the rule of capital only did so so that they may institute their own form of tyranny. Everywhere that we have liberal government, we have endless bureaucracy because the Jews hate liberty. So bureaucracy is rapidly developed within any liberal government in order to restrain liberty and place the people under an invisible, a faceless tyranny.
Rabbi Lewis Brown, an early 19th century writer and radio commentator, commentator who liked to consider himself a philosopher, along with six million other Jewish devils, wrote in his first book, Stranger Than Fiction, that it was little wonder that the churchmen came to speak of the whole liberal movement as nothing but a Jewish plot. And among many other things, he also openly boasted that no agitators did more to bring on the revolution of 1848 than those two Jews, Heinrich Heine and Ludwig Born. Before we continue, we would like to contrast two completely opposing attitudes towards government. That of Frederick Bastia and that of Adolf Hitler. And I'll probably bastardize Bastia. I'm sorry. I probably am not pronouncing it correctly. I think I might be. I always do that. The following is from an essay by the French French statesman Frederick Bastia. It was written in 1848. As Europe was plunged into another social revolution agitating for democracy. To Bastia, the state was a fictional entity by which all of its members seek to live at the expense of everyone else. Of course, he was writing somewhat cynically because he was a defender of what he believed was was right, a free market economy, and a supposed right to economic liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness, familiar words. He was an enemy of socialism, but not only Marxist socialism, which is not really socialism at all, he was an enemy enemy of all socialism. So Bastia wrote the following, As on the one hand, it is certain that we all address some re- such requests to the state, and on the other hand, it is a well-established fact that the state cannot procure satisfaction for some without adding to the labor of others, while awaiting Another definition of the state, I believe myself entitled to give my own here. Who knows if I will not, if it will not carry off the prize. In other words, he's presuming to give the best definition of the state. And he says, here it is. The state is the great fictitious entity by which everyone seeks to live at the expense of everyone else. And he goes on to say, and and that quote is commonly quoted on the internet, he goes on to say, for today, as in the past, each of us, more or less, would like to profit from the labor of others. One does not dare to proclaim this feeling publicly. One conceals it from oneself. And then what does one do? One imagines an intermediary. One addresses the state, and each class proceeds in turn to say to it, You, who can take fairly and honorably, take from the public and share it with us. Alas, the state is only too ready to follow such a diabolical advice, for it is composed of cabinet ministers, of bureaucrats, of men, in short, who, like all men, carry in their hearts the desire, and always enthusiastically seize the opportunity to see their wealth and influence grow. The state understands then very quickly the use it can make of the role of the public of the role the public entrusts to it. It will be the arbiter, the master of all destinies. It will take a great deal hence, a great deal will remain for itself. 
It will multiply the number of its agents. It will enlarge the scope of its prerogatives. It will end by acquiring overwhelming proportions. And I couldn't take the time to um, to, to get to it, to, to pull the, the quote for this program, but somewhere in the papers of Benjamin Franklin, I remember very clearly, and this is 80 years before Bastia, he had complained about the English bureaucracy and how far it had grown and how it had an office for every possible function that they could imagine. And and he railed against that. He was unhappy with that situation. And I'm sure that he would have intended not to duplicate it in a new American government. But you see what happened. It's inevitable. Bastia continues... But what is most noteworthy is the astonishing blindness of the public to all this. When victorious soldiers reduced the vanquished to slavery, they were barbarous. But they were not absurd. Their object was, as ours is, to live at the expense of others. But unlike us, they attained it. What are we to think of a people who apparently do not suspect that reciprocal pillage is no less pillage because it is reciprocal? that it is no less criminal because it is carried out legally and in an orderly manner, and that it adds nothing to the public welfare, that on the contrary, it diminishes it by all that this spendthrift intermediary that we call the state costs. And this certainly seems to represent the prevalent model of the view of government in this era of individualistic capitalism. Bastiat was a classical liberal, an economist cast in the mold of Adam Smith, and a Freemason. Smith and Bastiat were the models upon which the Austrian school of economic libertarianism is based which is the system prevailing in the West today because it is most accommodating to Jewish capitalism, since it promotes open borders and condemns trade protectionism. Bastia seems to have seen the prevalence of parasitism to be the inevitable outcome for the liberal state. However, Bastia seems to have taken it for granted that such a system of government was just and inevitable. He had also avidly defended capitalism and usury, and he wrote a famous essay on the topic of usury, capitalism and usury, simply called Capital and Interest, which is still widely considered to be the last word on the supposedly inevitable benefits of the capitalist system. However, Bastia's view of the state, as well as his promotion of classical liberalism and usury, usury as a necessity to economy, is antithetical to Christianity. And while we would not promote such statism at all, a contrasting model of the state is the definition offered by Adolf Hitler, which is based on the Christian principle of a state as an institution representing the interests of a particular extended family of people, which in turn is the true and Christian concept of nationhood.
Hitler also promoted the additional Christian principle of the self-sacrifice of the individual, not the individual looking to live off of the expense of others, which Bastia thought was inevitable, Bastia the, the, the Freemason. Hitler promoted the additional Christian principle of the self-sacrifice of the individual for the benefit of that family of people which are termed the nation. Hitler had envisioned a state which was unencumbered by the disease of parasitism. So in Book 2, Chapter 2 of Mein Kampf, Hitler wrote the following. A state may be considered as a model example if it adequately serves not only the vital needs of the racial stock it represents, but if it actually assures by its own existence the preservation of this same racial stock, no matter what general cultural significance this statal institution may have in the eyes of the rest of the world. For it is not the task of the state to create human capabilities but only to assure free scope for the exercise of capabilities that already exist. On the other hand, a state may be called bad if, in spite of the existence of a high cultural level, it dooms to destruction the bearers of that culture by breaking up their racial uniformity and flooding them with Mexicans. For the practical effect of such a policy would be to destroy those conditions that are indispensable for the ulterior existence of that culture, which the state did not create, but which is the fruit of the creative power inherent in a racial stock, whose existence is assured, it should be assured, but it's not in the liberal governments, whose existence is assured by being united in the living organism of the state. Once again, let me emphasize the fact that the state itself is not the substance but the form. The state is the form representing the people, the substance of the people themselves. So the state, the government, shouldn't be confused with the nation, which is what we all do today because it's the way the damned Jew television and media have programmed us to do. Earlier in Mein Kampf, in Book 1, Chapter 4, Hitler had written that the following may be proclaimed as a truth that always holds good. A state has never arisen from commercial causes for the purpose of peacefully serving commercial ends, but states have always arisen from the instinct to maintain the racial group. That's how tribes are organized. That's how families organize into units that defend themselves and make sure that they can support themselves and they elect chieftains or appoint chieftains to do that to lead them in that endeavor that's how that that's how early europe was what was organized naturally states have always arisen from the instinct to maintain the racial group whether this instinct manifests itself in the heroic spear or in the spear of cunning and chicanery. In the first case, we have the Aryan states, based on the principles of work and cultural development. In the second case, we have the Jewish parasitic colonies, 
But as soon as economic interests began to predominate over the racial and cultural instincts in a people or a state, these economic interests unloose the causes that lead to subjugation and oppression. And you have men like Frederick Bastia, who's writing tracts supporting usury and capitalism. In the so-called Western democracies, that subjugation and oppression is executed under the mask of bureaucracy and the restriction of liberties for the presumed public good. We've seen that same pattern over and over throughout American history these last hundred years. Then writing about the relationship of capital to the state, Hitler said in Book 1, Chapter 8 of Mein Kampf, on such principles, the attitude of the state towards capital would be comparatively simple and clear. Its only object would be to make sure that capital remained subservient to the state and did not allocate itself the right to itself, the right to dominate national interests, which we've seen in America since 1913. Thus, it could confine its activities within the two following limits. On the one side, to assure a vital and independent system of national economy, and on the other, to safeguard the social rights of the workers. So National Socialism sincerely sought to protect the rights of the common people of the nation from the usurious capitalists. Hitler wanted an economy free of the parasitism that the Freemason, Bastia, promoted as both inevitable and also as beneficial in a liberal system. For Hitler, the state came into existence as an organism, organizing and defending the substance of a particular tribe or nation of people. And properly, a nation was, of course, a wider growth of a particular tribe or tribes who are all of the same origin and race. For Bastia, the, the state merely regulated the economic interest of a group of people living in, this, in the same geographic area under its control. Hitler himself very eloquently summed up the difference, once again, from Mein Kampf, in Book 1, Chapter 4, where he wrote, The triumphant progress of technical science in Germany and the marvelous development of German industries and commerce led us to forget that a powerful state had been the necessary prerequisite of that success. On the contrary, certain circles went even so far as to give vent to the theory that the state owed its very existence to these phenomena that it was, above all, an economic institution and should be constituted in accordance with economic interests. That's the Bastia model. Therefore, it was held, the state was dependent on the economic structure. This condition of things was looked upon and glorified, and it still is today, as the soundest and most normal arrangement. And this is, to a great extent, the model which is perpetuated by liberalism. In America today, the government is treated as an agency for the benefit of international corporations. So Hitler continues in Mein Kampf, Volume 1, Chapter 4. Now the truth is that the state in itself has nothing whatsoever to do with any definite 
economic concept or a definite economic development. It does not arise from a compact made between contracting parties within a certain delimited territory for the purpose of serving economic ends. That's how the United States did end up. The state is a community of living beings who have kindred physical and spiritual natures, the United States being 13, originally 13 of these such states. The state is a community of living beings who have kindred physical and spiritual natures, organized for the purpose of assuring the conservation of their own kind, for us and our posterity, and to help towards fulfilling those ends which providence has assigned to that particular race or racial branch, meaning that a state should organize and defend itself in order to meet the destiny which God has assigned it. Therein, and therein alone, lies the purpose and meaning of a state. Economic activity is one of the many auxiliary means which are necessary for the attainment of those aims. But economic activity is never the origin or purpose of a state, except where a state has been originally founded on a false and unnatural basis. And this alone explains why a state as such does not necessarily need a certain delimited territory as a condition of its establishment. This condition becomes a necessary prerequisite only among those people who would provide and assure subsistence for their kinsfolk through their own industry, which means that they are ready to carry on the struggle for existence by means of their own work blood and soil. People who can sneak their way, like parasites, into the human body politic and make others work for them under various pretenses, like capital, can form a state without possessing any definite delimited territory. This is chiefly applicable to that parasitic nation which, particularly at the present time, preys upon the honest portion of mankind. I mean the Jews. For these reasons, among others, Hitler had to be destroyed. And since then, the system of traditional liberalism, liberalism which was promoted by Bastia, which favors the Jewish capitalists, has prevailed. Hitler's ideas were not new, as they were in turn developed out of the organic socialism of French and German philosophers and economists who were among Bastia's contemporaries. But socialism is not Marxism, and that is another Jewish media deception. Under Marxism, the state controls the tools of production. The people own nothing. But true socialism demands that the producers themselves remain in control of such tools. The carpenter owns his hammer. <laughs> the painter owns his brush. And the Jew doesn't make a profit off the carpenter simply because the carpenter had to borrow money to get a hammer. 
Yet even today, many presumed economic experts remain confused, and they accept the false dichotomy of Bastiat liberalism versus predatory Marxism, as if one or the other are inevitable, while the Jews were the beneficiaries of both systems. We may discuss this at further length, perhaps when we present the 22nd protocol, titled The Power of Gold. That's not inevitable in a state. Gold only has power within a state if the state allows it such power, which is why the inevitable outcome of Bastia's liberalism was Jewish capitalist supremacy and the imposition of a bureaucratic tyranny over all of the states which liberalism had infected. Coupled with the military conquest of all states which had resisted its power. With this we will continue with protocol number one. And the Jews say, or Satan says, in working out an expedient plan of action, it is necessary to take into consideration the meanness, vacillation, changeability of the mob, its inability to appreciate and respect the conditions of its own existence and of its own well-being. It is necessary to realize that the power of the masses is blind, unreasoning, and void of discrimination, meaning that they aren't able to discern good things from bad, prone to listen to right and left. The blind man cannot guide the blind without bringing them to the abyss sounds familiar. Consequently, members of the crowd, upstarts from the people, even were they men of genius but incompetent in politics, cannot step forward as leaders of the mob without ruining the entire nation. Only the person, prepared from childhood to autocracy, can understand the words which are formed by political letters. And we will briefly discuss this last statement first. This is very true. In the Middle Ages, as well as in the courts of the great nations of antiquity, princes and the sons of the noble classes were given tutors at an early age, which provided them with an intensive education in the history, language, culture, economy, and other subjects relevant to the times. All of this was done to prepare them for their positions as rulers and leaders in the next generation. The Romans and the Persians, Babylonians and Egyptians before them, took the noble youth of subject states and educated them along with their own children under those similar tutors. Members of the non-ruling classes rarely received such an education because it was irrelevant to the conduct of their daily lives. But in the old Israelite kingdom, all of the people were commanded to gather at the Sabbaths and hear the words of the Scriptures, so that they would understand the laws of God and be educated relevant to the conduct of a godly society. This idea was also woven into the fabric of the educational system in America, until the first part of the 20th century when the Jews launched an assault on the teaching of the Bible and Christianity in the schools, a discussion which we shall reserve for commentary 
in the appropriate portions of the later protocols. I believe that might be protocol number four. The Jews understood the tractability of the uneducated masses and knew that through their control of the media that they themselves could ultimately control a sufficient percentage of the masses for their own advantage. In Volume 1, Chapter 8 of Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler described, in part, the nature of the democratic political process where he wrote, Because of a certain vanity, which is always one of the blood relations of unintelligence, the general run of politicians will always eschew those schemes for the future which are really difficult to put into practice. And they will practice this avoidance so that they may not lose the immediate favor of the mob. The importance and the success of such politicians belong exclusively to the present and will be of no consequence for the future. But that does not worry small-minded people. They are content with momentary results. And in fact, we know from the American experiment with all certainty that the general public can't even remember what happened four years ago. Hitler had one advantage in his own rise to power, that the mobs of Germany at that time were racially homogenous. But on the other hand, discussing 1920s Germany, Hitler had described the same despair which many people in all of Western nations suffer today, in Volume 1, Chapter 12 of Mein Kampf. And he says that the fact that millions of our people yearn at heart for a radical change in our present conditions is proved by the profound discontent which exists among them. This feeling is manifested in a thousand ways. Some express it in a form of discouragement and despair. Others show it in resentment and anger and indignation. Among some, the profound discontent calls forth an attitude of indifference, while it urges others to violent manifestations of wrath. Another indication of this feeling may be seen, on the one hand, in the attitude of those who abstain from voting at elections, and on the other, in the large numbers of those who side with the fanatical extremists of the left wing. We already explained, in our discussion of the Jewish control of the German newspapers, that the German politicians were described as having commonly resorted to the newspapers in order to determine the public opinion while at the same time the Jews who owned and ran those papers were actually creating that so-called public opinion. Of course, this phenomenon still persists today, and it is very much exacerbated by the ubiquitous presence of electronic media controlled by those same Jews. So as long as a people are caught up in a capitalist system, they are reduced to the level of beasts competing one against the other for their daily bread. In that manner, they may be so much more easily manipulated by the Jewish-controlled media that they are little more than the tractable mob which the protocols describe here. In Volume 2, Chapter 2 of Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler is discussing the general physical health of the nation and the importance of physical health to one's mental capacity. 
and that's not the purpose why we're reading this, but we're reading this so that we understand that Hitler would have agreed with the authors of the protocols that the mob, the masses of a nation, once reduced to a mob under the capitalist system, can't possibly rise up against it. Just as, in general, the racial quality is the preliminary condition for the mental efficiency of any given human material, the training of the individual will first of all have to be directed towards the development of sound bodily health. For the general rule is that a strong and healthy mind is found only in a strong and healthy body. The fact that men of genius are sometimes not robust in health and stature, or even of a sickly constitution, is no proof against the principle I have enunciated. These cases are only exceptions which, as everywhere else, prove the rule. But when the bulk of a nation is composed of physical degenerates, like 300-pound overweight potato chip eaters, it is rare for a great spirit to arise from such a miserable motley, and in any case his activities would never meet with great success. A degenerate mob will either be incapable of understanding him at all, or their willpower is so feeble that they cannot follow the soaring of such an eagle. The state that is grounded on the racial principle is alive to the significance of this truth, and is alive to the significance of this truth will, first of all, have to base its educational work not on the mere imparting of knowledge, but rather on physical training and development of healthy bodies. The cultivation of the intellectual facilities comes only in the second place. And here again, it is character which has to be developed first of all. Strength of will and decision. And the educational system ought to foster the spirit of readiness to accept responsibilities gladly, if you really pay close attention to the modern American educational system. It teaches children that they do not have to accept responsibility, that everybody's a winner, that nobody's going to lose, that it's not your fault that this happened or that happened. Formal instruction in the sciences must be considered last in importance. Accordingly, the state which is grounded on a racial idea must start with the principle that a person whose formal education in the sciences is relatively small, but who is physically sound and robust, of a steadfast and honest character, ready to make, ready and able to make decisions and endowed with strength of will, is a more useful member of the national community than a weakling who is scholarly and refined. A nation composed of learned men who are physical weaklings, like we have throughout our liberal universities today and throughout society, hesitant about decisions of the will, and timid pacifists, is not capable of assuring its own existence on this earth. In the bitter struggle which decides the destiny of man, it is very rare that an individual has succumbed because he lacked learning.
Those who fail are they who try to ignore these consequences and are too faint-hearted about putting them into effect. There must be a certain balance between mind and body. An ill-kept body is not made a more beautiful sight by the indwelling of a radiant spirit. We should not be acting justly if we were to bestow the highest intellectual training on those who are physically deformed and crippled, who lack decision and are weak-willed and cowardly. What has made the Greek ideal of beauty immortal is the wonderful union of a splendid physical beauty with nobility of mind and spirit. And here once again Hitler was borrowing from ideas which had long been tried and proven to be true. A British general and scholar, Francis, I'm sorry, William Francis Butler, had said a century before him that the nation that makes a great distinction between its scholars and its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. Yet from the late 19th century, that distinction has become generally accepted in all of the nations of the West as the Jews took over academia. For every genius like George Patton, there are now 10,000 dolts like Omar Bradley. So the Jews of today lambast Adolf Hitler for wanting to create a so-called master race, when, in reality, he only wanted to educate the German people and encourage them to participate in the maintenance of a healthy nation that may withstand challenges such as the onslaught of Jewish subversion which they were already suffering through the Weimar period. As the protocols assert, the uneducated mob certainly cannot appreciate and respect the conditions of its own existence and of its own well-being. Hitler made the mistake of trying to educate the mob. And here we also see that Hitler would agree in part with the protocols, where they claim that members of the crowd, upstarts from the people, even were they men of genius but incompetent in politics, cannot step forward as leaders of the mob without ruining the entire nation. But we would also assert that in such cases, the ruin of the nation would come from Jewish subterfuge in their opposition to any real leader of a nation who would arise to resist the supremacy of the Jew. So the protocols are also filled with double talk and veiled warnings and illusions. So the protocols continued to present the Jewish theory of control in this manner. The people left to themselves, that is to upstarts from among them, are ruined by party dissensions created by greed for power and honors, and by the disorders resulting therefrom. Is it possible for the masses of the people to direct the affairs of the state without rivalry, and without interjecting personal interests? Are they capable of protecting themselves against external enemies? This is impossible, since a plan divided into as many parts as there are minds in a mob loses its unity and consequently becomes incomprehensible and unworkable. If today's leaders, even the founders of the American nation, were truly educated in ancient history, they may have better foreseen their own deficiencies. While many of them were well-read, 
enough of them were not educated sufficiently. In the democracy of Athens, as it is described by Thucydides, political parties were barred. The Athenians understood that every political party was, in essence, a conspiracy against the state, a conspiracy against all of the people who were not a member of that party. That fits the Bastia model of government very well. That fits into the Bastia concept of what a state is very well. The Athenians understood that every political party was in essence a conspiracy against everybody else in the country. In the ancient Roman Republic, groups of men were not permitted to meet privately, and I didn't pull the citation for this, but it's, it's from Livy. Livy, the Roman historian, explains this. Groups of men were not permitted to meet privately, as each private meeting was also suspected to represent a conspiracy. Men had to meet in public. And in a Roman Republic, if a politician offered to open up the public treasury for the benefit of any particular individual or group, he risked being hanged. Yet, there were no safeguards against any of these things in the founding documents of this nation. As soon as the first Congress was elected, the government was embroiled in party politics. Even though the Constitution says nothing about parties, some of the founders had written of the dangers of political factions, but the mobs eventually prevailed. The primary instigator seems to have been Alexander Hamilton, in his formation of a Federalist Party, while his primary opponents, Madison and Jefferson, seemed to have then formed a party of their own as a defense. Hamilton's Federalists never prevailed to, prevailed to gain power, but Hamilton certainly prevailed in rapidly ushering in party politics and poisoning the political operation of the nation right from the beginning. However, with no safeguards against political parties in its founding documents, the outcome was inevitable. The authors of the Protocols understood that inevitability. Only an autocrat can outline great and clear plans, continuing with Protocol Number 1, which allocate in an orderly manner all the parts of the mechanism of the government machinery. From this, it is concluded that the government, which is the most efficient for the benefit of a country, must be concentrated in the hands of one responsible person. Civilization cannot exist without absolute despotism, for government is carried on not by the masses, but by their leader, whoever he may be. A barbarous crowd shows its barbarism on every occasion. The, mo the moment the mob grasps liberty in its hands, it is speedily changed to anarchy. And we won't discuss anarchy tonight, but we have differing concepts of that as well. It is speedily changed to anarchy, which is in itself the height of barbarism. 
If you're a Jew, anarchy is the height of barbarism. If you're a Christian, you could have an anarchical society and not have any problems as long as you have a Christian society. It's all a matter of your point of view, your worldview, and the morality of your people. That's just that simple. The Dark Ages were not really dark. The Jews who sold Western civilization on the concept of liberalism and government by the people fully understood that government by the people would lead to failure so that those who would control the masses and the power of money would easily become the ultimate rulers of the society and the Jews controlled the masses through the newspapers in the 18th and 19th centuries. But the Protocols had already boasted earlier in this section that our power in the present tottering condition of all forms of power will be more invincible than any other because it will remain invisible until the moment when it has gained such strength that no cunning can any longer undermine it. And even though there are those of us who do see the despotic Jewish control of Western society, most of the people in the West continue in their blindness. This is in spite of the fact that to some of us it is so obviously flaunted before their very eyes. All world leaders make a pilgrimage to the Israeli state and kiss the wall in Jerusalem and the asses of the rabbis. All world leaders are visited by the Jewish Chabad organization on a regular basis. Most of the governments of the world have in one degree or another outlawed criticism of Jews or any refutation of Jewish historical claims in their legislation. In a Canadian news item from Wednesday, we read that a tenured Lethbridge professor was accused of anti-Semitism and suspended from his position. Now, this, this certain character is a rather liberal college professor who was alleged to be promoting conspiracy theories and denying the Holocaust and has been suspended without pay by the University of Lethbridge. This just happened Wednesday. An often repeated adage is that if you want to know who really rules over you, you should consider who it is that you are not permitted to criticize. The saying is generally attributed to Voltaire. As the Apostle had written of Jesus Christ, the foremost critic of the Jews, howbeit no man spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Nothing's new under the sun. Getting back to our subject, the authors of the Protocols have asserted here that only an autocrat can outline great and clear plans which allocate in an orderly manner all the parts of the mechanism of the government machinery. Because otherwise, the democracy is continually bogged down in constant parliamentary bickering over how or whether every certain thing should be done. Little is ever, little of note, is ever accomplished in a parliamentary democracy. Because with all of the divisions and strife resulting from self-serving interests, the government is bogged down eternally. 
And here, Adolf Hitler also agreed with the authors of the Protocols. As Hitler explains in Volume 1, Chapter 3 of Mein Kampf, initially, he was an ardent supporter of the parliamentary system of government when he was a young man, and he especially admired the way that the parliamentary government had been instituted and developed in Britain. Hitler loved Westminster as a child. But after careful observation of its workings, eventually not only frequent, eventually he not only realized the ineffectiveness, but he realized the lack of any real responsibility for failure, which is inherent in a parliamentary system and that had soured him on the virtues of that system. Observing the parliamentary system, he snapped out of it and realized that it wasn't any good. So he wrote, and, and this is a lengthy quote, but we pray it's worthwhile. The aspect of the situation that first made the most striking impression on me and gave me grounds for serious reflection, because he had just written about how great he thought the parliamentary system was, especially in England. He was more critical of it in Vienna. Gave me grounds for serious reflection was the manifest lack of any individual responsibility in the representative body. In other words, when the Senate passes a bad law, and, and the Congress and things get screwed up, nobody gets hung for it. They just go on and, and, and get reelected until they retire and collect their pensions. They're never held accountable for it. The Parliament passes some acts or decree which may have the most devastating consequences, yet nobody bears the responsibility for it. Nobody can be called to account. For surely one cannot say that a cabinet discharges its responsibility when it retires after having brought about a catastrophe. But that's what happens in America and the rest of Europe all the time. Or can we say that the responsibility is fully discharged when a new coalition is formed or a parliament dissolved? Can the principle of responsibility mean anything else than the responsibility of a definite person? Is it at all possible actually to call to account the leaders of a parliamentary government for any kind of action which originated in the wishes of the whole multitude of deputies and was carried out under their orders or sanctions. Instead of developing constructive ideas and plans, does the business of a statesman consist in the art of making a whole pack of blockheads understand his projects? Is it his business to entreat and coach them so that they will grant him their generous consent? Is it an indispensable quality in a statesman that he should possess a gift of persuasion commensurate with the statesman's ability to conceive great political measures and carry them through into practice? Does it really prove that a statesman is incompetent if he should fail to win over a majority of votes to support his policy in an assembly which has been called together as the chance result of an electoral system that is not always honestly administered? So you end up with a party of blockheads. Has there ever been a case where such an assembly has worthily appraised the great political concept before that concept was put into practice and its greatness openly demonstrated through its success. 
our representatives only sign bills before they even read them because the bills are 600 pages long and they can't possibly read them. In this world, is not the creative act of the genius always a protest against the inertia of the mass? What shall the statesman do if he does not succeed in coaxing the parliamentary multitude to give its consent to his policy? Shall he purchase that consent for some sort of consideration, which is done all the time? Or, when confronted with the obstinate stupidity of his fellow citizens, should he then refrain from pushing forward the measures which he deems to be a vital necessity to the life of the nation? Should he retire or remain in power? In such circumstances, does not a man of character find himself face to face with an insoluble contradiction between his own political insight on the one hand and, on the other, his moral integrity, or better still, his sense of honesty? Where can we draw the line between public duty and personal honor? Must not every genuine leader renounce the idea of degrading himself to the level of a political jobber? And on the other hand, does not every jobber feel the itch to play politics, seeing that the final responsibility will never rest with him personally, but with an anonymous mass which can never be called to account for their deeds? As our Congresses and English and and European Parliaments are never called to account for their deeds. When Europe is destroyed by this flood of niggers from the subcontinent of Africa, who's going to take responsibility for that? Nobody. The Jews are going to laugh all the way to the bank or, or to China or wherever, wherever the hell they plan on going next. Nobody's going to take responsibility for that. That's the problem with parliamentary democracy. Must not our parliamentary principle of government, by numerical majority, necessarily lead to the destruction of the principle of leadership? Does anybody honestly believe that human progress originates in the composite brain of the majority and not in the brain of the individual personality? Or may it be presumed that for the future human civilization will be able to dispense with this as a condition of its existence? But may it not be that today, more than ever before, the creative brain of the individual is indispensable. In other words, the thinking power of a particular individual can be greater than an absolute majority of people. And there's all sorts of proof of that throughout history. The parliamentary principle of vesting legislative power in the decision of the majority rejects the authority of the individual and puts a numerical quota of anonymous heads in its place who never have responsibility for what they do. In doing so, it contradicts the aristocratic principle, which is a fundamental law of nature. But, of course, we must remember that in this decadent era of ours, in the 1920s, the aristocratic principle need not be thought of as incorporated in the upper 10,000. The devastating influence of this parliamentary institution might not easily be recognized by those who read the Jewish press, and that's because they promote it purposely. Unless the reader has learned how to think independently and examine the facts for himself, 
This institution is primarily responsible for the crowded inrush of mediocre people into the field of politics. Confronted with such a phenomenon, a man who is endowed with real qualities of leadership will be tempted to refrain from taking part in political life because under these circumstances, the situation does not call for a man who has a capacity for constructive statesmanship, but rather for a man who is capable of bargaining for the favor of the majority. Thus, the situation will appeal to will appeal to small minds and will attract them accordingly. So you get John McCain's. Tons of them. The Jewish newspaper. The Jewish newspapers and other media perpetuated the promotion of the systems of liberalism until the Jews themselves were able to consolidate enough power to assert their own tyranny. Which is the point that we're at in history right now. So Hitler where, in this aspect, he is found in agreement with the authors of the Protocols, also came to understand that only an autocratic government could actually accomplish anything in the interest of the nation. But he had a solution which would combine both democracy and autocracy, while also having the ability to hold leaders more directly accountable for their bad decisions. So in Volume 1, Chapter 12 of Mein Kampf, Hitler wrote, the nature and internal organization of the new movement, National Socialism, make it anti-parliamentarian. That is to say, it rejects in general, and in its own structure, all those principles according to which decisions are to be taken on the vote of the majority, and according to which the leader is only the executor of the will and opinion of others. And that's how the parliamentary majority works. The movement lays down the principle that, in the smallest as well as in the greatest problems, one person must have absolute authority and bear all responsibility. And if we had added an examination of the immediate months after Hitler's rise to power here, we would see that one of the first things that National Socialists did, and did properly was to ban all of the other political parties because they were all no damned good and they wanted to straighten the nation out not slide back into the errors of the Weimar period. In our movement the practical consequences of this principle are the following. The president of a large group is appointed by the head of the group immediately above his in authority. He is then the responsible leader of his group. All the committees are subject to his authority and not he to theirs. There is no such thing as committees that vote, but only committees that work. This work is allotted by the responsible leader, who is the president of the group. The same principle applies to the higher organizations, the districts, the urban circuits, and the regions or states in Germany. In each case, the president is appointed from above and is invested with full authority and executive power. Only the leader of the whole party is elected at the general meeting of the members. But he is the sole leader of the movement. All the committees are responsible to him, and he is not responsible to the committees. His decision is final, 
but he bears the whole responsibility of it. The members of the movement are entitled to call him to account by means of a new election or to remove him from office if he has violated the principles of the movement or has not served its interests adequately. He is then replaced by a more capable man who is invested with the same authority and obliged to bear the same responsibility. One of the highest duties of the movement is to make this principle imperative, not only with its own, within its own ranks, but also for the whole state. The man who becomes leader is invested with the highest and unlimited authority, but he also has to bear the last and gravest responsibility. The man who has not the courage to shoulder responsibility for his actions is not fit to be a leader. Only a man of heroic mold can have the vocation for such a task. Human progress and human cultures are not founded by the multitude. They are exclusively the work of personal genius and personal efficiency. Because of this principle, our movement must necessarily be anti-parliamentarian. And if it takes part in the parliamentary institution, it is only for the purpose of destroying this institution from within, which is exactly what they did. In other words, we wish to do away with an institution which we must look upon as one of the gravest symptoms of human decline. The Jews labeled Hitler as a dictator and demeaned and ridiculed his form and his theory of government. However, at the same time, they themselves knew that democracy always fails, while endeavoring to install their own autocracy over the West. Being the hypocrites that they are, if Hitler were a Jew, the Jews would have idolized him. Now the Jews have accomplished their own endeavor, but their autocratic government still remains invisible to the masses, as they boasted that it would. Reading one more line with protocol number one, because it turns the topic quite extremely. Look at those beasts, steeped in alcohol, stupefied by wine, the unlimited use of which is granted by liberty. In February of 2014, we find a BBC article announcing a government policy that read, Alcohol floor price announced for England and Wales, regulating the price of alcohol as a desperate measure to curb excessive drinking. I need a sip of beer, I'm sorry. One line from the article informs us that Crime Prevention Minister Norman Baker said, The coalition government is determined to tackle alcohol-fueled crime, which costs England and Wales about... 11 billion pounds a year. Of course, the plan was ridiculed, but the struggle continues to persist. In any event, we see that the British government cited merely economic concerns as a reason to address the problem in the spirit of Frederick Bastia. A study can be done which would demonstrate that Jews who control the liquor industry are purposely selling certain products at or below cost in order to encourage more people to drink and thus grow their market share. The BBC article complained of companies which were doing that, doing that very thing, selling certain products below cost in certain markets. But that is beyond the scope of our discussion this evening.
But Britain is not the only place where this problem is recognized. A November 2013 article from Deutsche Welle Academy, a German news website, announced that Russia was to raise vodka prices to fight excessive drinking. The article says that with hundreds of thousands of Russians dying of excessive drinking every year, the Kremlin says it plans to hike minimum prices for strong spirits, including vodka, but the move may not yield the desired effect. Also discussed were previous attempts by Putin's government to raise prices and taxes, as well as eliminating advertising for alcoholic beverages, which had evidently been ineffective. The article went on to voice concerns over homemade alcohol, evidently something which is popular in Russia, which would not be affected by the price controls. And these are recent articles. These are both from the end of 2014, I believe, the beginning of 2015. America had its own prohibition struggle in the 1920s, which is something which we may discuss at greater length in a future segment of this series. But there are some things which government will never be able to effectively control, and consumption of alcohol is one of them. Things which God himself put on this earth, the state will never effectively control, and only exerts itself vainly whenever it tries. The Christian doctrine fair Christian doctrine permits alcohol, alcohol consumption. However, it clearly teaches moderation and is critical of drunkenness. It teaches self-responsibility. And in the Middle Ages, Christian moderation was frequently enforced at the community level. According to Oxford Scholarship Online, the doctrines and beliefs of Christianity in the Middle Ages were favorably favorable to the production and consumption of alcohol, especially wine. I'm sorry. The church taught that wine was an inherently good gift of God to be used and enjoyed. Individuals could choose not to drink, but to despise it was prohibited as heresy, which is pretty amazing. The brothers and priests and church officials must not have perished the thought of doing without their wine. The church favored drinking in moderation, but rejected its abuse as a sin. Those who could not drink in moderation were urged to abstain in order to avoid sinning. And of course, that is actually a good reflection, I believe, of what the New Testament says about wine. So, for man, the challenge is to balance the existence of alcoholic beverages with, with their use in moderation. It is not a coincidence that perhaps the Jews as a people seem to have been more successful with that endeavor than the Christian societies. In Jeremiah chapter 35, we find an account where the prophet was told to deal with some of the Rechabites. The Rechabites were Canaanites, intruders into the land of Judah. And the Canaanites are the true ancestors of today's Jews. And you could bet that some of the descendants of these Rechabites are among the Jews of today, the Sephardic Jews. Yes, they are. Yahweh God wanted to make an example that the Rechabites would be more faithful to the wishes of their ancestors than God's own people were to him. 
So we read in that chapter of Jeremiah, The word which came unto Jeremiah from Yahweh in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Hosiah, king of Judah, Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go unto the house of the Rechabites, the enemies of God, the Canaanites, and speak unto them, and bring them into the house of Yahweh, and into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. So Jeremiah says, Then I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazinia, and his brethren, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of Yahweh, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdalia, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalem, the keeper of the door. And I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites pots full of wine, and cups, and I said unto them, Drink ye wine. But they said, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, hence the name Rechabites, our father commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Neither shall ye build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any, but all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in a land where you be strangers. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he has charged us, to drink no wine all our days, we or our wives or our sons, nor our daughters, nor to build houses for us to dwell in, neither have we vineyard nor field nor seed, but we have dwelt in tents, and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab our father commanded us. Then a little further on in that same chapter, we see the objective of this interchange between Jeremiah and the Rechabites. Then came the word of Yahweh unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to hearken to my words, saith Yahweh? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed, for unto this day they drink none. But obey their father's commandment, notwithstanding, I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but you have hearkened not unto me. And the point, the morale of telling this, is that the devil listened, the devils listened to their father a hell of a lot better than the children of God listened to theirs. The greatest advantage which the Jew has over the Christian is that throughout the Middle Ages and more recent history, most Jews were generally not caught up in the bread and circuses, the gambling, prostitution, alcoholism, and other vices which the Jews have also consistently promoted among whites. And that too is a topic which must be discussed at length in later segments of these presentations of the Protocols of Zion or, I'm sorry, the protocols of Satan. Let's get it straight. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, and good night.